This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind, I give you Super Train. Oh, Episode 447, Submission Number 2539. Chuck E. Cheese and the Galaxy 5000. Chuck E. Cheese and the Galaxy 5000 was a direct-to-video movie that was released on October 5th. 1999. Now, question for you. Was this only available at Chuck E. Cheese locations as like a redemption? Or was this actually something you could have bought in a store or online in some capacity since Amazon would have uh, been in its infancy at that point? You could have probably gotten some stuff there. This, so far as I know, was only available at Chuck E. Cheese redemption walls. That would make this kind of rare then. I don't know how many people would be like clamoring to get the Chuck E. Cheese video out of all the different knickknacks and and goofy little toys they have there. I'll say this much. That's a better prize than one of those silly Chinese finger traps. I always wanted one of those. And let's remember, the trick is you don't yank to get out of the Chinese finger trap. You've got to push it together. You have to be like counterintuitive. Oh, I'm sorry. I probably spoiled that for some person who's listening to this who got their fingers stuck in one of those traps. Well, not really spoiled it, but I got you out. You're more than welcome. Okay, time for a brief history lesson before we get racing. I'm going to tell you the story of a man by the name of Nolan Bushnell. You know who Nolan Bushnell is, right? Oh, yes. He's the man who invented Atari. Not only did he invent Atari... Oh, look at the Greg understood the assignment, ladies and gentlemen. He has his PS4 copy of Atari 50, the anniversary collection. Be right back. Mike's going to get his now. Mike's now going to get his copy. But I should note, if you have not gotten Atari 50 yet, which is available on all fine video game consoles, PS4, PS5, Xbox One slash Series X, and Nintendo Switch, and Steam, and PC. They now have DLC for it. They actually have like a bunch of Atari 2600 prototypes that are now added to the game that they put out maybe about two months ago. And they have like a new Atari Lynx game on the Atari 50 collection. So if you were like, uh, I might hold out for Atari 50. No, get it now. Get Atari 50 now. We said this in the Atari 2600 commercials episode. This is a great collection, and Mike's holding a Switch copy. Which I still need to find. You can nowadays. I think the price of this went down from whatever I paid, which I think was $50. I think it's now like a $30 game brand new. But even at $50, worth every single penny. And I didn't hear what Greg said, but I bet you if I heard it, I would agree 120%. He was just uh, pimping DLC. Yeah, because they now have DLC in Atari 50. 
I don't think I've ever looked for DLC on uh, Atari 50. I know I've gotten some updates through the uh, Switch, but wow. Uh, it, it's just so amazing, Chico. And I'm not just talking the games themselves. It gets into like a full multimedia history of Atari. And I know how much you appreciate video game history. It's just so immersive and uh, just a visual masterpiece and, and, and an audio masterpiece. They went to great expense and put in so much material into this. Plus not even getting into like the old games and even the new version of like Yar's Revenge. Oh, it's just beautiful. And some Easter eggs in there and uh, some unlockable games. You'll enjoy it. Okay. Well, anyway, back to Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari, originally called Syzygy until they figured out that it was already in use. And Atari's first success was a game similar to, but legally distinct from, Chicago Coins Speedway. After playing the Magnavox Odyssey in Burlingame, California, Bushnell was given the task of cloning that game for the system. After Bushnell attended a demonstration of the Magnavox Odyssey, considered to be the very first home console, he gave the task of making the Magnavox tennis game into a coin-op version as a test product. After some tweaks to it, like speeding up the ball the longer the game went on, we have Pong. And that proved to be such a success that Atari created a home system modeled on Pong. Atari enters the consumer electronics market with the Pong console, and then things blow up. But in 1977, while things were blowing up, Nolan Bushnell had an idea. He wanted to purchase Pizza Time Theater, which he sold to Warner Communications because he saw no use for it at the time. He wanted to purchase it back from Warner's as a place where kids could go and eat pizza and play video games. Now, both Kevin Perjurer at Defunct Land and Jake Williams at Bright Sun both have really good deep dives into the history of Chuck E. Cheese. So I'm not going to go into too much detail here. Suffice it to say, after a couple of bumps in the road, Chuck E. Cheese still exists offering games, redemption prizes, and of course, pizza with a guy in a rat costume. It's a mouse, thank you very much, not a rat. One of the prizes that was available in the late 90s to early 2000s was something the likes of which has never been tried before. It hasn't been tried with predecessor company Showbiz Pizza Place. Hasn't been tried with defunct company Discovery Zone. It might have been tried with McDonald's, thanks to Mac and me. I don't know. But one of the things that was on offer at the world-famous Redemption Wall was a movie. 
but not just any movie, Chuck E. Cheese's first and to this day only feature-length film. And by feature, I mean roughly 55 minutes. It was called Chuck E. Cheese in the Galaxy 5000. Released on October 5th, 1999 at all Chuck E. Cheese restaurants, the plot of the movie is that a boy needs $50,000 to fix his aunt and uncle's tractor engine, so he recruits Chuck E. Cheese and his friends to go to the Galaxy 5000 to win it in a race. Wait, why do they have to go to the Galaxy to win this engine for a tractor? And for $50,000, why don't they just buy another tractor? What engine would cost $50,000? It's a kid's film. Don't try and think about it. $50,000 to fix his aunt and uncle's tractor engine. And now that I think about it, why are they using American dollars in deep space? Universal currency. I bet if you go to any country in the world, any country, I challenge you, go to South Sudan. They're not going to turn away your U.S. dollars. Go to Kyrgyzstan. They're not going to turn away your U.S. dollars. Go to Uruguay. I'm sure you'll be a friggin' millionaire in Uruguay with $1. Go there. They're not going to turn down your money. Not with their monopoly money that they have over there. This is the one place in the galaxy that doesn't use Star Wars credits. They use American dollars instead. I have not mentioned the little kid's name. Oh, wait. Oh, this is going to be great. What is the little kid's name? I bet this is going to be like a normal person's name. Like Joe, or Jack, or Dave, or Mike, or Carl. Oh, good. It's going to be something like Aloysius. The little boy's name is Charlie Rocket. Did somebody not learn from about 1981 that the name Charlie Rocket sort of fell out of favor because uh, he he said a uh, really bad word on live TV? We talked about this in previous entry, Saturday Night Live 80, by the way. Episode 97, but hold on a second. Maybe the person that made this tape was such a big fan of Tequila and Benetti that they decided, you know, I'm going to name the kid Charlie Rock. Or again, as Chico said, we're really analyzing this a little too deeply. Maybe he's just called Charlie Rocket because he goes to the Galaxy 5000 in a rocket. And wants to know who the F did it. Before we get into the whole cut to the chase, here's what happens and who happened and who did it and where and where was I, here's the official description from CEC Entertainment. Climb aboard the adventure machine with Chuck E. Cheese and his friends as they blast off for the coolest race in the universe, the Galaxy 5000. Chuck E. must win the race to help his friends Charlie Rocket, but can Chucky pull it off? Little does Chucky realize that he's racing against the evil Dr. Zoom and his ex-pilots who are cheating by using Zoom gas to hit Vega 2 speeds. It's like somebody in Texas was watching old episodes of Star Wars, 
Star Trek and Battlestar Galactica while really, really high. Which is incredible, because at the time, all they had in Star Wars was the three movies, the Ewok TV movies. But the fourth movie would have been in production at this point, right? Well, the fourth movie would have been out at this time, Phantom Menace, yeah. yeah. So they had that, too. Hold on, time out. You know what I just realized? They might have been inspired by the Padre scene. That's it right there. Good call. Which makes me want to play Star Wars Episode One Racer on the N64. Nice. Anyway, zoom gas hit mega two speeds. How can anyone fly that fast? More importantly, how can Chucky fly that fast and win the race for Charlie? Don't miss this musical adventure as Chucky learns to depend on his friends and believe in himself to overcome one of the biggest challenges of his life, the Galaxy 5000. CEC Entertainment did not go into this on their own. They commissioned the fine folks at Funimation Entertainment to help them. By the way, Funimation Entertainment, if the name sounds familiar, they are the people who brought America Dragon Ball Z. And most of the cast are known voice actors that work with Funimation Entertainment. The most famous of which is Christopher Sabat, who is best known as Vegeta and Piccolo. He also plays Roanoa Zoro in One Piece, Daisuke Jigen in Lupin the Third, and Dr. Arthur Watts in Ruby. I promised my friend Brady I would mention that. That's for you, girl. Other castmates, either in walkarounds or in suits, include Peyton Welch, Daphne Gare, and the voice of Duncan Brennan as Chuck E. Cheese, Georgia Denny and Linda Coleman as Helen Henney, Micah Metacos, Shay Caldwell, and the voice of Jeremy Blado as Jasper T. Jowls, Chris Kason, Rennie Fulton, and the voice of Christopher Sabat as Mr. Munch, who also plays the piano player, announcer, and narrator, Galen Bea as Charlie Rocket, Kenyon Holmes as his friend Peter, Rob Flanagan as his friend Ivan, Lydia Mackey as Astrid, the only one of the actual face actors who has an IMDb page with a picture on it, because she was in, among other things, Attack on Titan, Dragon Ball Z, and one of my favorite shows from last year, Trigun Stampede. By the way, Pasquale, who is behind Greg as a suit character, actually appears as a face character played by Stephen Lang. And this is his first, last, and only credit. So I'm guessing they needed somebody who looked like Mario but didn't sound like Mario. Now to describe Pasquale, he looks like Mario if you ordered him on Wish. But the actor, coincidentally, looks like Avery Schreiber, if you ordered him on Wish. (laughs) Never thought you'd ever hear Avery Schreiber and Wish.com in the same sentence in human conversation in history. First time ever. You take that back about Avery Schreiber. Avery Schreiber is an American treasure, Greg. Yeah, don't talk about the Dorito Bandito that way. You know what? It is insulting to compare him to Wish.com. No. 
We got an Avery Schreiber reference out of this. Oh my gosh. I lied. Chris Sabat is not the most famous voice actor in this feature. Oh, who's that? Duncan Brannon is the most famous voice actor in this feature. He's been in Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, Evangelion, Samurai 7. But before that, he was the voice of Barney. Oh, that's great. Was he the first voice or the second voice of Barney? I believe he was the first. Okay, because the second voice of Barney, as we all know, is Caitlin Deaver's dad. Okay, now, you know, after I think about this, the perfect voice for Pasquale, since we've been talking about how he's like Mario version of Wish, Avery Schreiber would be a fun voice, but I think you really need to go back into Mario history. Hit Captain Lou Albano. I think that would be the perfect voice for Pasquale. It's too bad Chris Pratt was like only like 16 at the time. Now that we have all of our particulars out of the way, here is the movie in brief. And again, special shout out to the Chuck E. Cheese wiki at fandom.com. That's fandom.com. They'll have a wiki for anything. A Chuck E. Cheese somewhere in Texas doubles as Pasquale's Diner. Several families are, you know, saying, hi, how you doing? Pasquale welcomes them all. After this, Pasquale's friend Chuck E. Cheese makes his grand entrance with Helen Henney, Mr. Munch, and Jasper T. Jowls before they all sit down for Pasquale to deliver dinner and have an emergency meeting about their friend, Charlie Rocket. Charlie needs money, and the gang takes out all the money they have. It's not nearly enough. Charlie explains that he needs the money for his aunt and uncle who own a farm. Their tractor is broken down before harvest time, and unless they get a new one, the farm will be shut down. And nobody wants that. Jasper suggests getting a job at a chicken restaurant, but that is just quickly shot down. I mean, chicken, video games, they don't go together. You lie. Raising Cane's goes with everything. We're only just starting to get Raising Cane's in New York, slowly. It's not here have... in Long Island yet, but it's going to be here eventually. So hopefully. We, we don't have Raising Cane's. All we have is Bojangles and the KFC, but nobody goes there. Well, you in North Carolina, you have good taste when it comes to chicken. Bojangles and Zaxby's. Wait, don't you have Culver's? There is a Keep... Culver's opening up. I don't know where, but it's close. It's within driving distance. We got a Culver's. Uh, it's maybe about three, four miles away. It was within the last year or so. And I've been there once or twice. I tried, what was it, the... Uh, the, the the curd burger or whatever it was, where it was like cheese curds on a, a burger. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't good for like $13 for the meal. I just realized something. Helen may have a problem with the whole chicken thing. Because she's a chicken. Oh! So Chucky asks Pasquale if there's anything they could do to help Charlie raise the money in time. And to answer, Pasquale turns on the TV... Because Chuck E. Cheese's in the late 1990s in Texas 
have TVs mounted on the corner, especially in the sports room, and the TV displays an ad for the upcoming Galaxy 5000, a Grand Prix race held on planet Orion, where racers fly in space jets and race against each other to win pride for their home planet and the coveted grand prize. 30 Quiller, which, if my math is correct, is about $52,000 in Earth money. The Galaxy 5000 is an interplanetary race on the planet Orion. The race loops through the Crystal Canyons region, ending back at the Mach 7 gateway where the race begins. Ooh, wow! Racers from many planets will pit their skills and courage in the hopes of winning the grand prize, along with pride for their planetary home. The grand prize for first place is a 30 kilo, which amounted to about a 52,000 US dollars. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> How are we gonna get one of them fancy flying racer vehicles? You can use a mild jet racer. You mean you've done this race before? Five times to be exact. Wow! wow. <laughs> hey, I was a younger once, just like your crazy kids. Wait, they use donuts as money? Oh, you said, was it Kriller? Quiller. Oh, I thought you said Crawlers. Okay. I got a question. How did they get the frequency to get this commercial from somewhere else in the galaxy on this TV? Don't you know, Greg, everything's bigger in Texas, including TV satellites. Oh, that's right. They probably had those big-ass C-band satellites still in the late 90s. Plus, it's probably close to Houston, and you know they're hiding something at NASA. Oh, yeah. At the Johnson Space Center? You know that. They don't just give away all those space camp trips on Nickelodeon and not be hiding something. Oh, when you win the grand prize on Double Dare, they're going to give you like a surprise. You're going to see some serious shit here. So Pasquale also reveals not only does 30 Quiller round off to about $52,000, which is just enough. He also reveals he used to compete in the Galaxy 5000 himself five times in the past, and his old co-pilot, Flapjack, will be there to let him use the old jet racer he's flown in. Flapjack! So Chucky and the gang accept, but Pasquale gives a warning that the race has not changed much since he retired and plays the rest of the tape. See, Greg? It's a tape. Oh, it's a tape, not a transmission. One of the racers, a team called the X-Pilots, has broken the speed records by achieving super fast but impossible speeds known as Vega 2. And authorities are investigating in case of anything suspicious. But they have no evidence. Jasper and the others are uncertain over how difficult it is to achieve Vega 2, like the X is. And ba by the way, Vega 2 is not even a thing. Vega 2 sounds more like a planet than an actual speed. But Chucky suddenly catches a sense of adventure and decides they should enter, leading him to sing a song with everybody in the restaurant. Jasper is skeptic, but after some enticement, he gives in, and the whole team sets off for adventure 
out there. So deep beneath Pasquale's Chuck E. Cheese diner, there's a secret laboratory. And in the secret laboratory, we have Pasquale's awesome adventure machine, which will help Chucky and the gang get to planet Orion fast. And before departing, Chucky shows off his new racing uniform, which looks like what would happen if a uh, racing uniform and a mid to late 1980s Chucky e. Cheese uniform had a kid. Helen has no problem with it. They all get in the machine. They say goodbye to Pasquale, who stays behind, and activates the machine, sending the team to planet Orion. Once the team arrives, they land in a heap on the Mach 7 gateway where the race is taking place and are astounded by the planet's wild atmosphere. Nearby, they encounter the ex-pilots, Peter and Ivan, who are being interviewed by the press over how they managed to reach Vega 2 speeds over a supposed training program. So Peter and Ivan, they're not friends of Charlie's. They're bad people. And they don't care whether they were disqualified from last year's race because of it. When they overhear Helen call them jerks for attacking the reporter, they begin bullying her and Jasper before Chucky stops to stand up for them and nearly pick a fight. You don't want any of that smoke. He's Chucky motherfather cheese, man. He runs the video game and pizza racket on Earth. Peter Piper ain't got nothing on this guy. Suddenly, the ex-pilot's captain, Dr. Zoom, breaks up the argument and calls them away to save their conflict for the track, and Chucky leads everyone away to find Flapjack. In a nearby garage, they encounter Flapjack, who immediately recognizes Chucky, because, come on, it's Chucky freaking cheese here, and he leads the team to show him Pasquale's old space jet and three-time winner, the Songbird. But it turns out to be... Uh, how can I put this humanely? A hoopty. Wait. So they literally got a space hoopty? Did they borrow it from the guys from Homeboys in Outer Space? I wish it was that space hoopty. But it's just as outdated and just as in need of major repair. After Flapjack leaves, Helen realizes Jasper is a mechanical genius and should help him, but he's unsure. Suddenly, they're greeted by a woman named Astrid, whom Chucky takes a quick liking to, and she adds that she has an interest in racers and is excited to see them race in the qualifier tomorrow. Oh, she's a race girl. You know what I'm talking yeah, about, right? Yeah. Although she's mildly surprised by the way the songbird looks, Chucky promises it will look better than ever when they actually fix it and then fly it. When Astrid drops her handkerchief, Chucky and Jasper wrestle over who gets it before Chucky manages to beat him. But Helen takes it and gives it to Astrid out of jealousy. Astrid then invites Chucky to the soda shop after the qualifiers for a date, but when she asks if he and Helen were taken, Chucky denies it and calls her one of the guys. Oh, jeez. Helen, again, jealous. Storms off in a fit of anger, but Chucky doesn't understand why she's upset. Uh, see, he understands pizza. He understands video games. He does not understand women. That evening, Chucky helps Blackjack fix the songbird while Helen laments in the soda shop balcony over why Chucky can't see 
the real me. Another song there. The next day, we have the qualifying round. Chucky and his gang are in heap number four. They fully fixed the songbird, gave it a more contemporary makeover, but Helen is nowhere to be found, much to Chucky's confusion, as that wasn't how she usually acts. Jasper says the songbird's ready to go and needs to be taken for a test run, but Chucky puts in that there's no time for that as the race is starting. As the team boards the songbird, Flapjack tells Chucky to take it easy at first because the ex-pilots only use Vega 2 when they near the finish. He also warns the team that the final three miles of the course run through the dangerous Dead Man's Canyon. After a false countdown, the race begins, but the songbird stalls, prompting Jasper to reconnect the wires and pretty much jumpstart the thing before it finally takes flight. Once in the air, Chucky enjoys flying the songbird just before catching up with the X-Racer in the lead up ahead. The songbird overtakes the X-Racer, but Peter and Ivan have other ideas and hit the songbird, sending them out of control before Chucky manages to get them back on track. Using Jasper's advice, Chucky starts making the songbird do tricks which allow them to avoid the X-Racer's cheats, taking back the lead. Soon after, Peter and Ivan engage Vega 2, activate a switch, and releases a smoke substance called Zoom Gas, which they inhale and activate the setting, leaving the songbird in the dust. Chucky realizes they should go into Vega 2 as well, but it's unstable, and he has a hard time piloting. Eventually, they reach Dead Man's Canyon. Chucky's unable to see properly during Vega 2 and keeps crashing the songbird. The X-Pilots place first. The songbird finishes dead last. Later at the soda shop, Chucky tells Astrid about his qualifying failure, feeling there's no way his team will be able to win the final Galaxy 5000 race, which is the next day. Astrid reassures him that he'll do fine. But then Helen arrives with the X-Pilots alongside her, making it look like she has joined them and betrayed Chucky's team. Oh, no. Uh-oh! Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's been a while since we've done that, okay? She's secretly faking it to go undercover and find out the secret to their cheating. They reach Chucky and Astrid's table and proceed to mock and berate him in very row. Helen claims she's left Chucky for the champions and he is nothing but a loser. He's a loser! After the ex-pilots leave, Jasper laments to Munch and Charlie that they have a snowball's chance in Texas to win the race if Chucky doesn't act up. Because it's a kid's movie and you can't say the real phrase. Peter and Ivan then bring Helen to an underground warehouse where Dr. Zoom works and she proceeds to lure them into admitting how they were able to fly at Vega 2 so easily and win all those races. It leads to the point where Ivan accidentally lets slip. They use Zoom gas to help them win, and the two argue again before Dr. Zoom arrives, admitting Helen has finally discovered the X-Team's secret, and they are indeed cheaters. Dr. Zoom reveals the team inhales the gas, which allows them to see better during Vega 2, allowing them to easily overtake their competitors, and adds it is made from the extract... Oh, boy. It is made from the extract... Of chicken. What? Absolutely nothing about this makes sense. So 
Peter and Ivan sees Helen, and Dr. Zoom tells her since she threatened to expose them, she's going to be reduced to juice before the race the next day. Later that evening, Chucky has decided to ride the songbird alone to practice Vega 2 before the race, while Jasper comes out and tries to stop him. Chucky insists that he has to if he wants to win tomorrow. Jasper offers to come with him, but Chucky says he can do it alone and takes off. Reaching Dead Man's Canyon, he shifts into Vega 2, once again unable to pilot the thing properly, and there's another crash. In an underground cave, Chucky is greeted by Harry, a wise hermit who bears an uncanny resemblance to Pasquale. Harry rescued him from the crash and brought him to his home to recover. Chucky realizes the songbird is broken and he has no chance of winning now, telling Harry of his racing situation and his inability to handle Vega 2. Harry reveals the reason Chucky cannot handle Vega 2, like the ex-pilots, because he didn't do any training. He needs to have the correct skills to race properly. Chucky agrees and lets Harry train him, and throughout the night, Harry guides Chucky through a series of ridiculous but sharp exercises to help him focus and discover his true potential. The next day at the soda shop, it's the day of the big race, Astrid is stunned when Munch, Jasper, and Charlie have told her Chucky's missing. What? He's missing? He's missing. How did he go missing? He's still with the not Pasquale training, I'm guessing. Oh, okay. The ex-pilots arrive and Astrid joins them because she spent all of her vacation savings to watch a real racer compete. She had no likeness for Chucky as he thought and was only there for the prize money, claiming Peter and Ivan are better racers for her type. She leaves with them, calling the trio the table of losers, making them worry for Chucky more. Back at the cave, Chucky has finished his training and Harry has mended the songbird in that time. Chucky thanks Harry for helping him prepare and he sees him off as he departs for the race while Helen is trapped in the warehouse cellar along with a series of other captive chickens. Oh no, she's trapped of her captive chickens. This is not good. Mike, this is not good if she's trapped of her captive chickens. I really want Raising Cane's right now. Not a commercial, guys. It's not an endorsement, guys. It's a declaration of love. But if you Cane's folks want to send some free chicken my way, I'm not going to complain. Helen manages to get out of her trap by using one of her feathers to pick the lock just as Dr. Zoom comes to juicify her. She knocks Dr. Zoom unconscious with a frying pan and escapes the warehouse with the other chickens following behind. With the Galaxy 5000 just moments away, Chucky arrives back at the gateway for everyone to welcome him back with relief. Chucky sees Astrid flirting with Peter and Ivan, and he's all like, Oh, Hell no. Chucky realizes her true nature. Quips, she got what she wanted. Helen also returns and apologizes to Chucky for the way she acted at the soda shop and was only going undercover. Chucky apologizes back for excluding her, and she's a true friend and teammate. Helen then tells the team about the Zoom gas. Chucky realizes everything before flying the songbird to the starting line. And now... It's race time! When he gets to Dead Man's Canyon, he puts it into Vega 2, easily handles it, but 
Thanks to the zoom gas, the X racers take the lead. Chucky's unable to pass them. The songbird winds up in the black forest, resulting in them going off the race radar. But Chucky cannot take them out of Vega 2. Otherwise, they won't be able to catch up. Chucky manages to fly the songbird out of the forest and back on the map, but they've fallen back to last place. Oh, no. That's not good. They've fallen back into last place. With the end of the race nine, Chucky realizes that the only way they can catch up is if they go to a speed higher than Vega 2. Oh, I know where they're going to go. They're going to go to ludicrous speed. Even faster than that. Wait, Chico. You're saying that there's a speed faster than ludicrous speed? There's a speed faster than ludicrous speed. Oh, my God. Don't say it's Vega 3. Oh, you have watched this movie, Mike. No! Really? And just for the record, I have not seen this movie. No, neither have I. So how unimaginative is that? The speed higher than Vega 2 is Vega 3. Harry calls Chucky over the radio to give him advice, but it quickly shorts out and loses reception, and Chucky begins to lose hope until Charlie admits that he believes in him. Popping Jasper and Munch to also give their words of encouragement as well. Chucky begins to gain confidence until he becomes self-assertive enough to activate Vega 3, and with that, he reaches Dead Man's Canyon and is successful at flying through without crashing. We're in the home stretch. The Songbird manages to get ahead of the X-Racer by mere inches and crosses the finish line first to win the Galaxy 5000. But only by so much. Chucky wins much to the shock of the X-Team and Astrid as Dr. Zoom is seized by the police. Chucky and his friends regroup and they all cheer him for his victory and Charlie thanks him for that because... He won. His aunt and uncle's farm is saved. Chucky happily admits not only Charlie helped him believe in himself, but his whole team did. He begins leading a celebration with everyone in the stadium as they sing and dance to a song called We Did It. While Dr. Zoom and the X-Pilots are arrested and taken away to custody, but not before Astrid takes her handkerchief back and ditches them as they argue once again. The film ends with Chucky and his team getting their photo taken by the reporters and a montage of stills over the course of their adventures shown as the credits roll. And that's the movie. It's absolutely schmaltzy. Wait, you're kidding me. A video you could only get at the Chuck E. Cheese redemption counter is schmaltzy? Yeah. Not to steal a line from the birthday boy, but I'm shocked. This is my shocked face. Not really much to this movie except a uh, hour-long commercial for Chuck E. Cheese, which is kind of ironic since this is the only place where you can find it. Although, you can now watch the film in its entirety on YouTube. It's really something. I'm just thankful we can all watch this together on the internet. And I'll share in Chuck E. Cheese Racing in the Galaxy 5X. This is what Nolan Bushnell had wrought. A talking mouse racing in space for $50,000 to help a little boy keep his farm open. 
that was probably inspired by the pottery scene in episode one. And it's all brought to us by the fine folks who brought Dragon Ball Z to America. Before we wrap this up, though, I just want to preface this by saying this was, as you guys know, planned well ahead of time. As soon as I was able to put my money in the bank on the schedule, I declared this. But as it would happen, there's actually news attached to this entry. So Chuck E. Cheese is teaming up with Magical Elves to create a game show? You know, I can buy it. From what I've seen and heard, it sounds like it's going to be sort of a mix between, like, Raid the Cage and, like, Family Game Night, if you remember that on Discovery Hub back, gosh, it was probably about 13, 14 years ago now. I do remember that. The Emmy award-winning family game night, if I'm not mistaken. So it's supposed to have like supersized arcade-ish type of games like like air hockey and I'm guessing if it's Chuck E. Cheese, you gotta have skee-ball. I have a list here. We have pinball, air hockey, alley roller, and the human claw. Oh yeah, there is gonna be a human claw game. I wonder if that's going to be sort of like when uh, Bob Belcher and the Belchers went on Family Fracas on Bob's Burgers and they actually had like a crane with Bob attached to it and they lowered him into the ball pit. That would be awesome. But also, you said pinball. Didn't anybody learn anything about like supersized pinball with the Magnificent Marble Machine? Albeit that was close to 50 years ago. But it still sounds fascinating, and it's gotten so much traction, I've actually seen it on the local news in the last, like, day or so. It sounds like it could be really fun, though. And also, I like how the term they used, rollerball or whatever you said it was, can't really say ski roller. Alley roller. Okay. You can't really say ski ball since that's a licensed name, but we know what alley roller is. I'll give it a try. I mean, seriously? Yeah, it's sometimes not really fun watching people do this stuff, but, you know, at the same time, if it ends up being sort of like this kind of family game night slash Raid the Cage type of hybrid, I'm aboard. I love Raid the Cage. Raid the Cage is one of our favorite shows from last year, by the way. Even though we didn't mention it in the year in review as one of our favorite shows. We only had but so much time and so many shows to talk about but anyway one of the shows that never gets old though the match game hollywood squares hour it's time for this weekend match game hollywood squares our history Gentlemen, we've made it all the way to the fourth full week of January 1984. And this week is a very special week. It's We Got It Made week. Well, not necessarily in the same way that we had Leave It to Beaver, where we had seven people from Leave It to Beaver and Gallagher. We sort of have like five people from We've Got It Made or four people from We Got It Made. 
this week we have Gary Berghoff from MASH. Or actually, at this point, it'd be after MASH, not MASH. And from We Got It Made, Terry Copley, Matt McCoy, Buddy Urseth, Tom Villard, David Oliver, and then Leah Ayers, who wasn't on We've Got It Made, as far as I know. I remember her from the 9 to 5 series. And then America's Sweetheart back in 1984, the one and only Nidra Voles. No, 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 no. America's Sweetheart to you, not to me. Name me America's Sweetheart in 1984. Mary Lou Retton, silly. Everyone knows this. She got famous at the Olympics. This is January of 1984. So name me America's Sweetheart in January of 1984. A little four-year-old Chico? Little Chico. My ass, you were America's Sweetheart in 1984. Okay, you know, this whole birthday thing's going to his head. <laughs> so yeah, Nidra Voles was America's Sweetheart in 1984. Thank you. Well, at least until July of 1984. Then Mary Lou Retton became America's Sweetheart. And then by January of 1985, Deidre Voles became America's Sweetheart once again because everybody was done with Mary Lou Retton. But hey, we actually have shows this week. We did have a $20,000 win on Tuesday of that week with uh, Bonnie Ursef and a $10,000 win with Matt McCoy. But nothing real spectacular in terms of gameplay, in terms of contestants. It was sort of a blase week in that regard. But we did get one thing out of this week. America got to see America's Sweetheart in early 1984. Nidra Voles. End of story. Back to you to wrap up the show, Chico. Don't you think how I cut that off before Greg could say anything about Nidra Voles not yeah. being America's Sweetheart? That time out. Did Tom have the 30 in any of the episodes? Why, yes, Greg, Tom Villard had the 30 on both the Monday and Tuesday episodes of this week. Wow! Chico, it's time to reveal a revelation about Chuck E. Cheese that I found out that I showed Mike. And I don't think you're ready for this. This is from the Today Show. Now, this is from their website. And I want you to read this out loud for us. Chuck E. Cheese was an orphan who didn't know his birthday. Oh my god. Shut the front door. Did you know about this, Chico? I was today years old when I learned all of this. Alright, let me read this Today Show article from Today.com, written by Chrissy Callahan from August 22nd, 2019. Many people have fond childhood memories of celebrating birthdays at Chuck E. Cheese, the games, the pizza, the prizes. And while a lot of former kids may think they know everything about the popular arcade restaurant and its namesake road, did you ever stop to wonder what Chuck was really like as a child? It turns out this cheerful mouse has been hiding a very depressing secret past. By now, you likely know that Chuck E. Cheese is an animal who loves to sing and have a good time. But it wasn't always pizza and prizes for this music-loving mouse. Someone on Twitter recently shed light on Mr. Cheese's history, revealing that he grew up in an orphanage. Sad, but even sadder, young Chuck loved celebrating other kids' birthdays growing up, because get the tissues ready. He never knew his own. 
BuzzFeed later confirmed that the story is indeed true and unearthed the digital copy of the children's book, The Story of Chuck E. Cheese, on the restaurant's website. A Chuck E. Cheese representative later confirmed to Today Food that the brand first published the story to its website around 2012, so it hasn't been around since the chain's inception in the late 1970s. The story opens by explaining that a young mouse named Chuck grew up in an orphanage called Get Ready for This. State Marineras. <laughs> what? State Marineras. That's the orphanage that Chuck E. Cheese was placed in. Thus setting the stage for this pizza-loving rodent's personality to develop. Readers also learned that Chuck E. Cheese, whose middle name is actually entertainment, always loved the song Happy Birthday, yet he had never heard it sung to himself. However, with so many kids around the orphanage, the little mouse had a lot of opportunities to celebrate with other kids, and he came to truly love birthday parties. Then Chuck E. Cheese grew up and had to leave the orphanage, because adults can't live with kids. More sadness, he moved to New York City to be around a lot of people, but he still felt lonely to spice things up. He started secretly living in a pizza bar. He loved the music and the delicious aroma of pizza, but he couldn't hide for long. Now, Chico, do you have any questions? Chico wants to know where St. Marineras is. <laughs> For all we know, St. Marineras might have been the orphanage Matt Murdock went to after his dad died. Oh my Season god! Daredevil. Instead of putting you in holy water, do they baptize you in pizza sauce? I'm going to hell, I know I am. Soon, the owner, a man named Pasquale, found Chuck E. Cheese and tried to chase him away. Nervous, the mouse began to sing. Lo and behold, his angelic voice blew the owner away. A mouse that can sing, my restaurant is saved. I'm going to make you a star, Pasquale said. He was so inspired by Chuck that he changed the name of his restaurant to Chuck E. Cheese's, home of the world-famous singing mouse. But guys, there was still more sadness to come. During Chuck's first performance, the audience booed him. But when he finally sang Happy Birthday to a lone child of the audience, the crowd poked up, and the rest is history. The Happy Mouse went on to sing with several friends, and he convinced Pasquale to incorporate games into the restaurant. While we were all getting our game on and noshing on pizza, it turns out Chuck E. Cheese was hiding a pretty dark, back-personal story. But all's well that ends well, and it's clear that Chuck's adversity just made him a better person or a mouse man. Today, Chuck E. still loves birthday parties, pizza, and music, a Chuck E. Cheese representative said. Kind of makes sense because now the uh, lead singer for Bowling for Soup, Jarrett Reddick, voices Chuck E. Cheese. I'm going to make a parallel here. Chuck E. Cheese's evolution story is very similar to that of the gong show. People booed the gong show at first, but grew to love it. Go by Adam Needham's book, by the way. Think of that connection. People didn't like Chuck E. Cheese at first, but he went to that little boy and sang happy birthday to him, and everybody fell in love with him. Same thing. Gong show, some goofy act comes out there like, this is the stupidest stuff ever. Gong. But you know what? Get rid of John Barber as host. Bring in Chuck Barris. And hilarity ensues. Everybody loves the franchise. And of course, let's remember, the original host of the gong show, John Barber, was on 
the new Liars Club. Oh, hold on. I found an image of Chucky performing at the restaurant on opening night. Look at him. He looks like a stand-up comic. He's at the Chuckle Hunt. What's the deal with pizza? It's like if Billy Birdie did stand-up. Oh, but you're not going to believe this. You know what uh, Chuck E. Cheese's favorite game is? Pong. Of course, no one Bushnell. But also, going back to that image of him looked like he was going to do stand-up. Okay, look at him and, and look at his face and look. just look at that. Why does it look like he's ready to be like, Is this thing on? This is the worst episode of It's Always Showtime at the... It's always showtime. I'm thinking about it. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's always showtime at the Apollo. This is the worst episode of It's Showtime at the Apollo I've ever seen. End the show! Episode 448, submission 1027. Hail to the Chief. Hail to the Chief aired on ABC from April 9th to May 21st of 1985 for seven episodes. And that's nine less than your traditional crock block. We know what it is. I went through all the Hanna-Barbera series last week that had 16 episodes. We're not going to do it again. In the last episode of Hail to the Chief, everyone was talking about the end of the world. Julia talked to Premier Zolotov about how she talked to the crazy major who was still talking about launching the missiles that would blow up the world. Julia's advisors all talked about the fact that time was running out, and although they talked a lot, none of them could talk about a solution. Doug, the president's son, came home to talk to his father about a girl he did more than just talk to. Talk about a coincidence, the girl was General Stryker's daughter, who talked her father into believing that Luger was to blame. Oliver tried to talk Julia into forgiving him about some women he did more than just talk to. But Julia wasn't interested in talking. Since Julia needed to talk to somebody, she decided to talk to her father, who's a better listener now that he's dead. Oliver went to talk to his mistress, Darlene, but talking was never Darlene's strong point. When Oliver talked to her about ending their relationship, Darlene talked about ruining his life. So Oliver decided to talk to God. And while they were chatting, he talked himself into saving the world and headed for the missile silo. Confused? You won't be after this episode of Hail to the Chief. Gentlemen, if we go back to the mid-80s, specifically 1984, that was an election that made some history. We had our first female vice presidential candidate, first female on a major ticket who could have ascended to the presidency. Obviously, since then, well, currently we have a female vice president. But back then, little me would have been all of nine years old at that point. I remember the news of Geraldine Ferro being the running mate for Walter Mondale in 1984. And it was huge. 
and it was historic. It sort of put a light and drew attention to the uh, women's rights, uh, which was very prevalent in the 70s. Obviously, that ticket didn't work out that well because I think Reagan won every state except Mondale's home state of Minnesota. Or maybe there was another state. I think maybe like a New Hampshire or a Vermont may have gone with Walter Mondale. It was 49 states for Reagan. Mondale won Minnesota and D.C. Oh, he got D.C. Okay, I thought he got one of the little northeast states. But still, the only electoral votes he got were from his own home state and from D.C. Of course, it doesn't really help in a debate when you say, I'm going to raise your taxes. Didn't we learn that from the whammy? I will raise your taxes. <laughs> well, you're not going to be president, you little bastard, if you keep on saying that type of stuff. But I like money. Okay, I get that. You're cute, you're adorable, but you're not a good politician. So building off of that, I can assume, somebody said, hey, let's make a sitcom out of this with a female president. And hilarity will ensue. Well, there is hilarity, but obviously, as I said earlier, there's seven episodes of hilarity, so maybe hilarity didn't ensue for all that long. Now, Hail to the Chief itself really had a format very similar to Soap, in that it was a comedy with open-ended storylines that parodied a soap opera. So you had that continuity in each episode, the one thing that probably would have made this better, not great necessarily, but better, would be if they had Rod Roddy doing the intros and outros like on Soap. He was a little busy at the time doing Pressure Luck. And this would have been, what, about six months, nine months before he got the Price is Right job because Johnny would have still been alive in April and May of 1985. I think that would be great. Confused? You won't be after the next episode of Hail to the Chief. Now, actually, there is quite a logical reason for that. The people who created Soap, Paul Junderwit, Tony Thomas, and Susan Harris, also created this show. And instead of Rod Roddy, they got a lady by the name of Rachel Donahue as your announcer. Now, she is a longtime radio personality in San Francisco and Los Angeles. She was the original entertainment reporter for CNN. She was a VJ for Cable Music Channel. Cable Music Channel. That might be something we need to cover one day. The Turner equivalent of MTV that lasted, I want to say, a month and a half. It did not last very long. It's either a month and a half or a year and a half, but still, it didn't last very long. So the president in this show, her name is Julia Mansfield. And the big thing about the show is how does President Mansfield balance out her work life, running a country, running probably the biggest and most powerful country in the world at this time, especially with nuclear wars and other issues you had back in the 80s. But at the same time, raising her family, and playing Julia Mansfield. Oh, this is great casting. 
Patty Duke. We can't say a bad word about Patty Duke. It's impossible. She's like America's sweetheart in 1985. Oh, there we go. That fills the blank from the last episode. Because during the Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour history segment, I said Nidra Voles was America's sweetheart in early 1984. And then in mid-1984, it was Mary Lou Retton because of the Olympics. And I said that lasted until 1985, where presumably Nidra Voles got it back again. No, no. Patty Duke Aston. She was going to be America's sweetheart in 1985 if this show worked. Now, hold on a second. No, it couldn't have been Nidra Voles in early 1985 because I just figured it out. 16 Candles came out like in late 84. So it would be Molly Ringwald that took the title of America's Sweetheart from Barry Lurette. So I know, Mike, you really want it to be Nidra Voles, but let's be honest. Nobody thinks she's America's Sweetheart other than you. And we at least agree for like a month and a half in 1985, Patty Duke was America's Sweetheart? Yes, we can. Thank you. I appreciate that. Playing her husband, General Oliver Mansfield, the first husband, if you will, not first lady, the first man, is Ted Bessel. Ted Bessel is more of a behind-the-scenes type of personality. He directed the Tracy Ellman show, but he was on 137 episodes of That Girl as Donald Hollinger, and he was also on 19 episodes of Gomer Pyle. And, oh my gosh, just looking at the name of this show and looking at the IMDb ratings for it, this might be something we need to cover if we can find it. He played Mike Reynolds, the lead character, a dentist, in a 1972 series called Me and the Chimp. I expected a reaction from somebody there, but whatever. So Me and the Chimp. Dennis Mike Reynolds is living a good life with his wife Liz and his two children, when Scott and Kitty find a chimp, he reluctantly agrees to keep it, but finds his life turned upside down when the eight buttons causes chaos on a regular basis. 3.6 stars on IMDb, and that's out of 10, not out of four stars. Oh, but I'm looking at the cast. I found why we need to find this. Not Ted Bessel, not Buttons the Monkey. Anita Gillette plays his wife. We need to find this. And there's a ton of guest stars, name guest stars. Oh, you know, if I didn't already commit my money in the bank and this was out there, I would make this my money in the bank. Hey, you know what? Next year, I'm going to make a declaration. If we can find me and the chimp for my 50th birthday, I will make me and the chimp my money in the bank in 2025. I know we can't officially declare that, but I'm just saying right now, if this can be found, happy 50th birthday to me. I know you guys are just so excited, I, so giddy I for can't it. wait. <laughs> now you're like, damn it, they're better be me and the chimp on Tubi since they carry every darn thing. Where's the lie? Did not say there's a lie. They carry every. I just saw somewhere they have like 80,000 movies and TV shows or titles. They do literally have like everything, it seems. I don't know if it was shows or episodes or whatnot, but the number was pretty staggering. Playing the daughter Lucy Mansfield is Quinn Cummings. 
She played Annie Cooper and Marcy Wills on 36 episodes of Family back in the late 70s and early 80s. And really, her career ended in 1992 with a single episode of Evening Shade. Not true. Her career on television ended in 1992, but she's a frequent guest on Mark Marin's WTF podcast. I ah, see. I don't listen to that. And I should add this for Greg. Her second to last credit on IMDb is in one episode of Blossom. Whoa. Whoa. Thank you. Playing the son Doug Mansfield is Ricky Paul Golden. Ricky Paul Golden had a little bit of a career in the 2000s as Gus Itoro and Nicholas Agostino Spaulding on Guiding Light. 274 episodes. And he was on 467 episodes of All My Children and 137 episodes of Another World. So he's basically that guy in that soap opera. And relative to you, Greg, he was in one episode of Jessica Jones. Which season? I don't know which season it is, but it's Carlo Eastman. It's season one, episode four. Okay. Well, just to let everyone know, after Echo got released earlier this month, in January, the Marvel Netflix shows, which have always been on Disney Plus under the Defenders saga, have now since been added to the official MCU canon. It was always like a question of, well, it's kind of like on the fence of if it's canon or not. But nope, Disney Plus finally confirmed, I think last week, at the time of recording this, that yes, all the Marvel Netflix shows are now canon to the MCU. I also want to add one more credit just because Somehow, in close to 450 episodes, we have never mentioned this. Ricky Paul Golden was in the movie Lombada. Do you guys remember Lombada Mania? I know you guys are young, but Lombada, the dance of love, 1990. You can't talk about that. It's the forbidden dance. Well, I think I just did for the first time in 448 episodes. Why'd they make a movie called Lombada? Probably sort of to get the dirty dancing thing. Because I mean, that's basically what it was. It was like the forbidden dance, the dance of love. And they made a movie about it. It was supposed to be this big thing, but it was like a huge bust at the movie theaters. And again, IMDb, a 3.4 rating out of 10 stars. I'm looking at the cast here. You got J.D. Peck, Melora Hardin, Ricky Paul Golden, Basil Hoffman. You've got Dennis Berkeley. We've Dennis talked about Berk- Dennis Berkeley. I was Berkeley. just about to say Dennis Berkeley, a future Hall of Famer, and Adolfo Shabadu. And Keen Curtis, too. Look, I'm not going to lie. You had me at Laura Hart. I think we had you at Forbidden Dance. Look, I want to see Jan Livingston do the Lombada, damn it. First time in recorded history, somebody's uttered that. You see, I was doing that, telling you about Lombada, Greg, because you would have been like five, six years old at that point. You wouldn't have known about Lombada mania. Even Chico, he would have been like 10. Maybe he 
he got it a little bit. But me, I was in that sweet spot, 14, 15 years old, horny-ass teenager. Give me the dance of love. I'm not going to say I didn't know about it, but I didn't not know about it. Like I said, Chico had a pulse back in 1990, and he was of the age where he would know a little bit about it. I'm just trying to educate those folks 40 and under who don't realize Lombardomania back in 1990 was like so huge. And then this movie comes out and but enough about the forbidden dance. Let's talk about some more people in this series playing Ivan Zolotov. Again, another name that I don't think we've talked about all that often, which is a bit of a shame. Dick Sean. Very well-known comedian. Yeah, he was in uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and the producers from 1967. And really, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, one of the great movies back in the 60s. Highly recommended. He was in Captain EO. That must have been like right before he died because Captain EO would have been 87, I think. 86? But still, like right before he died, he died in April of 87. And actually, the one thing I know that he was on, I don't know if it was posthumously or not, he was on a week of wordplay. Oh, the first week. So that would have been December of 86. And I think uh, early 87, because it was only four episodes. So I'm going to assume that New Year's Day was in there. Because I remember wordplay debuted late December of 86. So that would have been like, Four months before he passed away. Playing Reverend Billy Joe Bickerstaff. Man, this guy might be making a Hall of Fame case. Richard Paul. We talked about him in Carter Country. We talked about him in One in a Million. We even talked about him in the uh, Jerry Falwell movie. I forget what the name of that movie is. People versus Larry Flint. Yeah, that one. It's such a good movie. No, it really is a good movie, but it's such a good movie, I forgot the title of it. Yes, and that was like a year, maybe two years at most before he died. But, oh, Richard Paul playing Jerry Falwell in The People versus Larry Flint. An amazing movie. He owned that role. He really did. He, he did a superb job, had the look, had the mannerisms all down straight. Now, admittedly, when you were on Carter Country and you sort of had that Southern drawl and whatnot, that's sort of easy to morph from Carter Country to Jerry Falwell, the preacher man. So it, it's not a big stretch, but again, he did it so beautifully and seamlessly. Playing Secretary of State Helmut Luger is Herschel Bernardi. There's another name that we really haven't talked about, even though he's a name. He was Lieutenant Jacoby on Peter Gunn. Well, everybody remembers that theme song. I mean, that was like a staple when I was in high school. That was like the first thing we like learned to play in high school band was Peter Gunn. Nobody knew what the heck Peter Gunn was. Nobody really knew who Henry Mancini was because he obviously uh, uh, created that theme. But the thing is, that's like the easiest theme to do. 
especially if, again, you're like a 14, 15 year old high schooler. And also, Herschel Bernardi played the lead role, Arnie Nouveau, in the series Arnie from 1970 to 1972. And really, that sort of answers a question uh, in my mind of who is Herschel Bernardi, because I've seen some reruns of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In in the past, and Herschel Bernardi's on it, and I'm like, who's Herschel Bernardi? I know who this is, I know who this is, I know who this is, and Herschel Bernardi always sort of escaped me I've never really seen Peter Gunn, but okay, it makes sense. He's on this show, Arnie, and he happens to be on Rowan Martin's Laughing around 70, 71, 72. So now it all makes sense. Now I can put a a, a face to a, a role. Playing Randy, don't have a last name, unfortunately, but playing Randy is Joel Brooks. I think all of us would know him better as, number one, pretty good pyramid player back in the day. But also, number two, he was on My Sister Sam. Somewhere recently, I saw a picture of him within the last year, like a recent picture. I don't remember if it's social media or where have you, but he's still uh, hanging in there. But yeah, like I said, the place I remember him is Pyramid, and I definitely remember him on My Sister Sam. Yeah, he is currently one of the featured stars in Freeform's Good Trouble, which is wrapping up its run this year. Never heard of that. Okay. He was also in My Dad Says. Future installments bleep My Dad Says. I think Greg has stuff to say about that. Playing Senator Sam Cotton. I don't know. Just that name sort of invokes an image of certain senators you would have had in 1985. I'm thinking you're Jesse Helmses. I'm thinking you're Strom Thurmond's. Sam Cotton just seems like a name that would fit with those folks, for better or for worse. Played by Murray Hamilton. Murray Hamilton, he did a little bit of everything. He was, oh, he was Mr. Robinson in The Graduate. Not Mrs. Robinson, Mr. Robinson. Oh, so that explains why Anne Bancroft wanted to get Dustin Hoffman. With all due respect to Murray Hamilton. Boy, you have a pick between Murray Hamilton and a young Dustin Hoffman. Yes, that's why she's trying to seduce you. Talking to Dustin Hoffman, she's not trying to seduce Murray Hamilton. Hold on. You think Aunt Bancroft got like a bunch of free tickets to Qantas Airlines later on in her life? Because Dustin Hoffman's character in Rain Man wants to go on Qantas. So those are the major stars of the show in terms of appearing on, let's say, a majority of the episodes. Now, there are only seven episodes, so we don't have a lot to go over in terms of plots and whatnot. Chico, I believe you have an episode guide, a complete episode guide. I've got a number of episodes, but I don't have a complete episode guide. So I'll hand the reins over to you. Thank you, Mike. Episode one. President Julia Mansfield is told that Brower, an Air Force general gone crazy, has taken control of a launch command center and will launch a preemptive nuclear strike against the USSR unless his demands are met. Julie calls Soviet Premier Zolotov to warn him and is told that the Soviet Union will have no choice but to retaliate if she can't stop Brower. Later, Julia's husband, Oliver, confesses all of his past affairs to her 
and she walks out on him. A couple of recurring characters are introduced on this episode, playing LaRue Hawks, Glenn Terman, you remember him from A Different World, playing the wife of Zolotov, Madame Zolotov, Susan Kellerman, who is best known for her roles in Last Holiday and Death Becomes Her, the younger brother of Lucy Mansfield, Willie Mansfield, played by Taliesin Jaffe, who was a that voice from that thing as of late. He was also on Scrubs. Episode 2. General Stryker tells head of security Helmut Luger that Stryker's daughter is pregnant and that Luger is responsible, unaware that Julia's son, Doug, is really the father. Corrupt televangelist Reverend Billy Joe Bickerstaff plots to have Julia impeached. Oliver's mistress Darlene threatens to ruin him when he tries to end the affair in an attempt to make up for all of his past mistakes. And Oliver promises God that he will save the world by stopping Brower. One more thing I want to add regarding this episode is a minister preaches that Satan has put a woman in the White House. Yeah, kind of a hot-button topic in 1985. Playing the role of Darlene Lubin, the other woman, Alexa Hamilton, nowadays can be seen on two episodes of NCIS, but was in the made-for-TV adaptation of The Poseidon Adventure from 2005. Back when it wasn't a rogue wave, but terrorism! Episode 3... Oliver confronts Brower and is shot in the process. Later, Julia tells a comatose Oliver that all is forgiven. Meanwhile, Ivan Zolotov, head of the KGB and the Premier's twin brother, arrives at the Russian embassy and instructs his agent Darlene to stay by Oliver's side so she can continue to get information. We're already starting to see how this is like soap. We have a face to the name of Major Brower. Playing Major Brower, Terry Kaiser. I know that wasn't the reaction you were expecting. I think Greg is just in shock. And also, have we officially put him in the Hall of Fame yet? Yes, we did. I put him in the last year. So let's put some respect to that name. It was a thing on TV. Hall of Famer, Terry Kaiser. Hold on. I get a great idea. What if, let's just say, he died, and they all pretend like he's not dead, the major. By the way, in case we haven't mentioned it, playing General Stryker, John Vernon, who is Dr. Stone in Airplane 2, the sequel. I do want to add more stuff about this episode, because I've got a bit more information on my capsule. Oliver cons his way into the missile silo in an attempt to thwart the madman who has threatened to detonate a nuclear device. Oh, and also, one thing I do want to add, when Chico is giving the episode names, you've heard him say episode one, episode two, episode three, so on and so forth. We don't have actual episode names to this. It's literally called, in the episode guides, episode one, episode two, episode three, episode four. So we're not missing that information. That's literally what's given to us. And with that out of the way, 
Chica will take us to the midway point, episode four. Episode four. That's why I said episode four. That's what I said. Episode four. Episode four. Oliver episode four. Wait, episode four. Episode four. Episode four. Oliver Don't say episode four, then say episode four. We know it's episode four. It's episode four. What's it about? Oliver recovers, believing that heaven has given him a second chance. His daughter Lucy is sleeping with Raul the butler, but Raul says that he can't commit to a serious relationship until his people in Contrapointa, South America, are free. Darlene visits Oliver in the hospital. Stryker tells Luger to marry his daughter Muffin under threat of death. And the Reverend Billy Joe finds two wealthy oil barons, Clovis and Lamar, who are willing to help him with his plan. I wonder about Contrapointa, South America. Do they have three ones there, sort of like in the final season of Soap? One, 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 two, one, three, and they're played by Joe Mantegna and Lori Faso and uh, Luis Avalos? We can only hope, but I'm just saying. Not outside the realm of possibility. Playing the two oil barons, Texan number one, Tony Frank, not much known in the way of him, but playing Texan number two, a known commodity, Noble Willingham from Walker, Texas Ranger. Don't drink. Don't say it. Walker told me I need. Say it. Get it. I said, don't say it. I found the role for Tony Frank, though. Played Terry's dad on UHF. And then we have, as Lamar Montgomery, Pat Hingle. Pat Hingle, best known as Commissioner Gordon in the 1990s era Batman movies. And Pat Hingle's also one of my all-time favorite movies. Brewster's Millions! Greg does like his Brewster's Millions. Have you ever seen Brewster's Millions, Mike? Bits and pieces. Oh, you have to watch the whole movie. It's great. MLB Network probably airs it like once or twice a year during... Oh, oh I've seen it on, on MLB Network. They definitely show it more often than actually that once or twice a year you mentioned. Uh, obviously, this time of the year... Since we haven't hit spring training yet, they got to fill the schedule somehow. Lamar Montgomery, he's actually one of the oil barons. Another one, Clovis Montgomery, played by Burton Gilliam, who played Lyle on Blazing Saddles and a Colt gun salesman in Back to the Future Part 3. Oh, he's the one who's trying to sell Morty, that Colt peacemaker. The very same. Episode 5. Oliver, who is now home from the hospital, still can't make love to Julia because he feels guilty about cheating on her again. Clovis and Lamar find some dirt on the president's personal accountant, Irving Metzman, played by George Weiner. Yes, that George Weiner. And force him to help them plot against Julia. Oliver breaks it off with Darlene, but not before having one last time together unaware that the KGB is secretly filming the whole thing. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Hey, perfect. That's a great place to put the Patty Duke uh-oh. You can put, yes, yes. Perfect. 
Okay, so a couple of known names in this episode. Playing Sylvia, the delightful Rosemary. And playing Steve is Lonnie Price, who would be two years removed from playing that one role in the best Muppets movie ever, The Muppets Take Manhattan. Your mileage may vary, though, I'm just saying. The best Muppets movie ever is Muppet Christmas Carol. Let's be honest. Okay, you're all entitled to your wrong opinion, but that's just me. Look, do any of the other Muppet movies have Michael Caine in it? No. And playing a guy named Ahmed is Christopher Marr, who played the perpetually horned-up Armand in the only 80s movie that ever counts, 1987's Mannequin. Do you want me to get my Mannequin Blu-ray off my shelf No, 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 no. I've seen it plenty of times, thank you. No, no, we've seen enough cases from both of us this week when you showed your PS4 version of Atari 50 and I showed my Switch version of Atari 50, so... We've got enough cases this week. Episode 6. Clovis and Lamar give Metzman some money to secretly put into government contracts in the name of Julia's family as personal investments to make it appear that she gave her family inside information. They then tell the Reverend Billy Joe to attack Julia on his talk show. Ivan Zolotov confronts Oliver, letting him know that if he doesn't do what Ivan says, the world will see the film of him and a Russian agent. Ooh. By the way, Raul the Butler, played by Chick Venera, best known for three episodes of Vegas. Vegas. That sounds like an ice cream flavor, Chick what was that Chick Venera? That sounds like a Dollar General version of Chick Fil A, if you ask me. And the final episode: Raúl leaves for South America, and Lucy follows after him. Luger has dinner with Stryker's family, and after seeing how crazy they are, decides to marry Muffin if for no other reason than to get her out of the house. Ivan gives Oliver a list of demands. Later, Ivan admits to a colleague that if Oliver doesn't come through for them, he has a better plan, a plan to put a Soviet agent in the White House, at which point he introduces his newest secret agent, the Reverend Billy Joe. Dun, dun, dun. Playing Muffin Striker, Jonna Lee, who was in eight episodes of Future entry, Otherworld. She is a that woman from that thing. I'm going to throw one more name out there. This is a very minor role. Not even a name attached to this person. Just called sports writer number one. Is played by Ange Labou. I'm going to make a huge assumption here because of the last name. This series was directed by a J.D. Labou, whose name you may remember from Soap. Gonna guess that Ange Labou is J.D. Labou's son. And that's the series. Now, we could just say what went wrong. Unfortunately, there's no episodes out there, so we can't really 
break it down and say, oh, this definitely went wrong. So I think the easiest thing to do is go to the schedule. What did it go up against? It aired on Tuesday nights at 9.30 p.m. The competition on CBS was a mixed bag, to say the least, because from what I saw, CBS basically slotted miniseries and TV movies and specials that night. They didn't really have any consistent TV show, at least in spring of 1985. But on NBC, and I know Greg has feelings about this, Hail to the Chief went up against the second half hour of Riptide. Oh, yeah. You're not going to beat Tom Bray. Or Joe Penny. I know we love our Tom Bray around here, but are we going to forget about Joe Penny? Well, let's be honest. Joe Petty was responsible for keeping the fat man away from that teenage. And Fat Man 66, exactly. That's right. He had to keep Fat Man 66. Which is immediately before It's Always Showtime at the Apollo. Oh. Hold on. Hold on. We're forgetting about Perry King and the robot, too. We got to give love to the robot. You're right about that. And actually, taking a look at the schedule, yes, from 9 to 11, there's generally a TV movie or a movie in general. But 8 to 9, at least when the show was in reruns in June of 85, you had The Jeffersons' final season at 8 p.m. And then at 8.30, again, I believe this is the final season. This definitely has to be the final season, I think. Alice. So you had two shows that are definitely on their way out at this point in the Jeffersons and Alice. And then you had some sort of TV movie. I saw some specials. I saw one week where they had a miniseries, part three. I forget which miniseries it is. The name's irrelevant. But the point is, that wasn't really necessarily a stacked lineup that night for CBS. It did have a good lead-in, though. Taking a look at the schedule... This is potentially pretty good for ABC in 1984-85, but we know how some of this turned out. Breeze a crowd at 8 p.m. Meh. It's still, you know, sort of by extension, Three's Company, but we talked about that. You had, oh my gosh, I remember this, and this obviously was sort of a copy of another big show at that point. Foul-ups, bleeps, and blunders hosted by Don Rickles, sort of trying to copy off of the TV bloopers and practical jokes aspect. And then you had Who's the Boss at 9? Angela! Then you had Hail to the Chief, and then you had Previous Entry, Magruder, and Loud. So I think you had potential there. Three's a crowd, obviously, didn't work out that well. Foul-ups, bleeps, and blunders, it was gone after summer of 85, so it tried. Hail to the Chief, obviously, gone. Magruder and Loud didn't last that long. It seems like the only thing that survived was Who's the Boss? Hold on. Do you want me to give my impression of Tony Danza on Who's the Boss? Sure. Angel. Chico, do you want to join in to give your best Tony Danza impression of Who's the Boss? Angela? Angela. That's a good one. Chico did a good one there. And of course, as we all know, who's the boss? Mona. Right. Of course it was Mona. 
this isn't for debate. It's definitely Mona. And also, let's remember the time that Family Guy, Peter Griffin, did the float, the parade float, of when Tony saw Mona in the shower. <laughs> don't tell me you don't remember that. I remember that. I'm talking to Greg because of his reaction. That was a great moment. But hold on a second. We're eventually going to one day do a project where we're going to recap some of our favorite episodes from TV shows. And one of my favorite episodes is the Who's the Boss episode that I saw on YouTube. And let me just say, it is a pisser. And also, I think we should make reference. Guys, I don't want to make any of us feel old. But we're like a week away from Family Guy turning 25 years old. A quarter century of Family Guy. Oh my gosh. But you know what this also means, Chico? It's 25 years since The Rock and Mick Foley wrestled on halftime in Super Bowl 33. Halftime heat. That's right. The greatest freaking Super Bowl counter programming of all time. Yeah, you might think in Living Color on Fox in Super Bowl 26 was the greatest halftime counter program ever. No, USA Network beat that in 1999. Some final little notes about this episode. First and foremost, when this series was created, it came down to two names. Hail to the Chief, or the other name was Madam President. I don't think the name necessarily makes a big difference here. Either way, it sounds like the show was kind of dead. But also, Chico mentioned earlier about Paul Jungowit, Tony Thomas, and Susan Harris, who, who was the company behind Soap. But also, I mentioned earlier the director, J.D. Labou. He was the director on Soap. And you have a lot of names here that were related to Soap. I know we didn't talk about this guy on Soap. I forget where we talked about him, but the theme song was done by George Allison Tipton. It was another comedy from the 80s. I don't remember which one specifically. Condo? That's it. But also on top of that, he was a composer for basically every Junger Thomas Witt show. Empty Nest, Golden Palace, Golden Girls. It's a living. Benson. He was like the composer for Junger Thomas Witt. So you had the names from Soap going to this show. Looks like it's a recipe for success. Obviously it's not, but that might be for the good. But maybe because of Hail to the Chief's lack of success, we get the Golden Girls' success. Possibly. It started in fall of 85. Not saying they couldn't do two shows, but I'm just throwing that out there. I was actually looking at the schedule for fall of 85. You know what inherited this show slot? Little show from Neil Marlins called Growing Pains. No reaction from Alan. Okay. Now, hold on a second. Hold on a second. That's right. I replaced this show, guys. Alan, we haven't heard from you in a long while. How's everything going? Oh, everything's going good, buddy. What's going on in your 2024? Well, I'm from the... I, I'm just traveling from the future. So it's like I came by to see you guys. 
As you all know, I can't tell you anything about my own future. I didn't ask you for the future. I just said, how's your 2024 going? Oh, uh, you know, life in 2024 is amazing. You know, you got your own, you got some checkout counters now. That's something else. That's like science fiction Star Trek type. I know, Alan. Isn't self-checkout like so amazing? Oh, yeah, except when it doesn't work that well. Alan is really amazed by self-checkout? Yeah. Why? Because he travels from the past to the future, silly. And Ed's tortoise. But of all the technological advancements, self-checkout? Yes. I mean, nothing about AI, nothing about... Oh, 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 the AI, it all sucks. I know. Haven't you been listening to this podcast? We've been doing all the chat GPT segments for like, well, we haven't done a chat GPT segment in a while, but as we've all pointed out, AI is absolutely horrible. I mean, Alan, I got to show you this image. I mean, let's enhance.io of Hulk Hogan on Jeopardy as the host. Oh, let me see this. I really want to see it. What kind of is this? I know. I'm just biting my tongue. I'm not saying a word. To get it back to what happened? Yeah, what happened? This show did terrible. That's why I replaced it. Yeah, okay, so I think it all goes back to Soap. When Soap premiered in 1977, it was provocative, it slaughtered golden bulls. It spent four years going there. But, and I have a quote here from Susan Harris. I think the country has grown up some. In certain cities in 1977, soap couldn't be shown before 1130 at night. Now it's being shown in syndication at 530 and 730 in the evening, and nobody cares. So things have changed. I think that's a very valid point. Social mores definitely changed in the late 70s and early 80s, especially when you get to those hot button topics of homosexuality and and, and uh, interracial marriage and some of the other hot button issues that soap attacked. I really think that's a great point. That's a great quote. In 1977, soap was socially provoking but by 1985 people who grew up on soap were socially exhausted so yeah for better or for worse hail to the chief its failure kind of sort of brought on the golden girls and the rest is history younger thomas witt went on to oh my gosh i want to say immortality but let's say that i mean between soap and the golden girls Really, they're two different types of work, but they're both equally amazing in the different types of work they are. In the middle of that, though, we had Hail to the Chief and seven episodes. That's not even a mooch span. And unfortunately, Hail to the Chief, it just ended up being a thing on TV. But again, one that if it had a longer run, we may not get the Golden Girls. And if we don't get the Golden Girls, 
my gosh, I, I think we might have a different landscape in television. I don't think Betty White would be the legend that she is necessarily. But who knows? That's all speculation. Well, that's the state of TV democracy for you. That's going to be it for this episode. Please remember, you can always go to our website at itwasthethingontv.com and listen to all the previous episodes we got. We've got almost 600 different types of files there between main episodes and live shows and instant reactions and before the show, all that stuff. We're really close to 600 total items. And please remember, we're on social media everywhere, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon at It Was The Thing on TV. We're not at X slash Twitter anymore. I officially deactivated that today. So Yay! do not, you're more than welcome. Do not go to X Twitter. That's a cesspool. Please go to Instagram, Threads, Mastodon. You can find us at It Was The Thing on TV. And don't forget at Facebook, we are at It Was The Thing on TV podcast. And please remember, if you want to follow us on Mastodon, you need to do a search for us at It Was a Thing on TV at tvwatch.party. Yes, because as we all know, searching for something on Mastodon is a little confusing. So It Was a Thing on TV at tvwatch.party. You're fine there. And of course, every Friday, if you're listening to this on Voice Media Pop, we got the on the bus cuts of our two episodes for the week there right now. And hey, Mike, did you get Peacock? with the whole situation with the Browns last week in your area. I did not. But really, I saw the first episode of Ted. I need to see all the episodes of Ted. I'm probably going to get Peacock in the next couple of days. Okay, good. Because on the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, I'm doing a monthly podcast with Scott Cuspola where I'm doing a riff track style watch of WWE pay-per-views from the WWE Network section called Wrestle Tracks, And it's a fun look at some of the amazing wrestling pay-per-views and some of the pop culture going on at that time. So you can check that out on the Place Nation wrestling feed. And I guarantee you, Mike, hilarity is going to ensue. You're going to love it. Excellent. Be sure to check that out, everybody. But also, please do remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you can find podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Audible, etc., even if you just use one of those independent players like Podcast Addict or Antenna Pod, you can easily find us. Not terribly difficult. And please don't forget, we're also on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. Please do not forget to hit that notification bell. To stay informed of all future uploads on the channel, including what's coming up on the podcast next week. Oh, oh next week, I think we may have... Definitely one epic episode. I don't know if the second one's going to be really epic. But I think we got one real good winner here for sure. So first thing we're going to talk about is yet another goofy game show from the 70s. And this one epitomized goofy, but it also epitomized another word. Cheap. And it's not cheap, cheap, cheap. No, that was in the 2010s. But this is... Excuse the phrase, the original cheap show. But after that, you remember how we talked about Lombada earlier being the big thing in 1990 in terms of movies and the forbidden dance, the dance of love? Yes. Yeah. We're going to talk about another thing from 1990 that was supposed to be groundbreaking, supposed to be just amazing television. And unfortunately, 
it lasted a season. It had so much acclaim. It had such great names behind it. But in the end, it was a huge bust. So we're going to talk about a very cheap show, wink, wink, wink. And this thing, which was supposed to be absolutely humongous and amazing, but turned out to be a huge mess. Right here, at, it was a thing on TV. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe. And we'll catch you with those episodes next week. Wow. You know what I would much rather watch than Ale to the Chief? What's that? What's that? Oh, we did that in unison. Good job, Chico. All right. YouTube videos of gameplay of Hail to the Chimp on Xbox 360. Which, as I told Greg, for the money, now admittedly, the game only costs like $10, $15, but for the money, one of the funniest games you could buy. Really underrated. Well, remember, it is an established fact on this podcast that Greg hates money. Well, no, it's not hating money. It's a great game. It's not a $50 or $60 game. It's like a $15, $10, $20 game. But it is absolutely hilarious for the price. It is well worth the money. So, Greg, your hate of money has been absolved in this episode. Yes. So we are clear this is not the movie from The Simpsons, is it? Or the episode of Super Train with Billy Barty. You ever little guy in the magician. Are we talking about Hail to the Chimp or Hail to the Chief? Hail, Hail to, to the, the Chimp. Chief. Oh, I thought you were talking about Hail to the Chief. I was talking about that episode of Super Train. Because as we all know, I love thinking about Super Train all the time. So we were sort of talking about Hail to the Chimp and Hail to the Chief. Yeah. Oh, darn. It's not available on the PS4. I would buy it immediately on the PS4. PS3 and Xbox 360 only. Well, the game is 16 years old at this point, so maybe my expectations were a little high. It's timeless, though. It's hilarious. Like I said, best game you'll buy for like 15, 20 bucks. Absolutely. Ding.